2 Peter 3, the early verses in that chapter, Peter writes of those who doubted whether or not the Lord would fulfill his promise to come again, that all things were continuing as they were from the creation, and therefore the question was, is he really coming again? Scoffers, scoffers were present who were doubting the promise of his coming. Peter says they're forgetting something, willfully so, willfully forgetting that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water, talking about the universal flood of Noah's time and saying by which the word that the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth which now exist are kept in store by the same word, he says, reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. And then he reminds them, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. He's not saying literally that one day represents a thousand years literally. He's just saying that God doesn't reckon time as we do and that God has not forgotten his promise. And thus in verse 9 he says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering, long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But then he says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, the earth and all that is in it or the works that are in it will be burned up. And then verse 11, and we want a key on verse 11. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? What manner of persons ought you to be? The second coming of Christ is certain. The destruction of this universe is absolutely certain. And in light of the certainty of all of this, Peter writes, how should we be living? How ought we to live in light of what is certainly coming? And keep in mind, what is coming is coming. He writes it here by inspiration as a thief in the night. Isn't it strange that so many people over the years have tried to tell us when the Lord was coming again and they've missed it every time in their predictions? Why? Because there are no signs preceding the second coming of Christ. Many, as we've often said, confuse the signs Jesus gave in Matthew 24 about the destruction of Jerusalem that has come and gone in A.D. 70. They confuse those signs with the latter part of what the Lord said in that chapter when he said, but of that day and hour, meaning his second coming, no one knows. At that time, only the Father in heaven knew. And Peter reaffirms and confirms that by saying he will come as a thief in the night. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be long after all of us here today are dead and gone on into eternity. But it will come. And when it comes... It will come as a thief in the night. So how should we be living in light of the certainty of that destruction? 
and in light of the certainty of our death, unless he does come before we die, all of us will die. And that will seal our eternal destiny. Whether the Lord has come at that time or not, when we die, our eternal destiny is sealed. And so how should we live? What manner of persons ought you to be, is Peter's question, in holy conduct and godliness? And he gives us insight into how we should live there in summarizing holy conduct and godliness. But let's look at some specifics. In answer to Peter's inspired question, what manner of persons ought you to be? And the word there, what manner of persons, what manner, or what sort of, is the idea. What kind of? One commentator wrote some interesting words about that word there. In the context, he said the word hints that great things are expected of the readers. How outstandingly excellent. Great things are expected. What manner of persons ought you to be? In other words, great expectations of those to whom this is addressed. And yet, as we pointed out in Bible class, even if there are great expectations of us and we are to be outstandingly excellent, when we are outstandingly excellent, Luke 17.10 says, when we've done all that we are to do, all that is commanded, we are still to say what? We are unprofitable servants. We have simply done what was our duty to do. Why? Because of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. Anything we do to love in return is still simply unprofitable servanthood because of what the Son of God gave up and sacrificed for our sakes. What manner of persons ought you to be? How should you live in light of the coming certainty of judgment and the destruction of this universe? First of all, let us answer by saying we should live in the flesh, obviously, but not of the flesh. Look with me at Romans chapter 8. At some words by another inspired writer, the Apostle Paul, who in verse 1 reminds us that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because they're not walking according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. He's talking about the law of Moses. The law of Moses could not make us perfect because man couldn't keep it perfectly. And so there was a better law that God had in mind all along, the law of Christ, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. That's the law under which we now live, the law that will judge us in the last day, those of us living today. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk, verse 4, according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Now listen to verse 6. For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind is enmity against God for it is not subject to the law of God nor indeed can it be. So then, verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Is he saying those who live in the flesh, that is in a human body, cannot please God? Of course not. He's saying those who live according to fleshly lusts. 
Those who are carnally minded, fleshly minded, worldly minded cannot please God. How do we walk after the flesh today? Many walk after the flesh by hoarding their money, their material things, to squander it on earthly pleasures and wanting and seeking more, seeking fame, seeking popularity, seeking social position. All of that is a pursuit of pleasure that indicates we love that pleasure more than we love God. Second Timothy, Second Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle Paul speaks of those And it sounds very familiar to us. In the last days, he said, know this, perilous times will come. Does this sound familiar to you about the time in which we live today? For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, as the New King James renders that text, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 4. One who walks after the flesh cannot please God, Romans 8, verse 8, remember. And remember in our study we're engaged in on Sunday nights from the epistle of James where we looked in James chapter 4 at what James had to say about this kind of thing. Verse 4 of chapter 4, You adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself the enemy of God. He cannot have it both ways. And remember John's admonition in 1 John 2. 15 beginning, do not love the world or the things in the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And he goes on, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, he said, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God, abides forever. We've got to make a separation. We don't separate separate ourselves from the fleshly body in which we reside, in which this spirit that will live forever resides, but we do separate ourselves from the things of the world. What manner of persons ought you to be? We must be those who live in the flesh but not of the flesh. And secondly, we must not live for self only. Now true, we are responsible for saving ourselves. We've got to save ourselves in the sense that those on Pentecost, the first time the gospel was ever preached, Peter said what? Save yourselves from this crooked generation, as the King James says, or this perverse generation. Generation, be saved from this perverse generation, as the New King James puts it. Paul admonished in Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That doesn't mean that we save ourselves in the sense that we don't need the grace of God, that we don't need, that we don't need the sacrifice of His Son, but he's saying that we have a part to play. We have to react to the grace of God. We have to respond to the love of God. How do we do it? Through loving obedience to His Word. Not to the word of man and the tradition of man, but to the word of God. 
because it is true that each one of us, every single one of us, will stand before God in Christ and each one of us will give an account for himself or herself in the judgment. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. For each one, we must all, we must all be uh, manifest or appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may give an account for the deeds done in the body, whether they be good or bad. And so we've got to do something for ourselves, obviously in the spiritual sense, but we've also got to live unselfishly. Save yourselves by obedience to the gospel of Christ, which has come by the grace of God. And without that grace, no man could be saved. But it's not grace alone that can save us. It's not faith alone that can save us. It is grace through obedient faith that saves us. And when we have been saved in that fashion, we do not boast about that salvation and say, look what we have done. No, it's look what God has done through us in giving us the opportunity to respond. We save ourselves in obedience to the gospel, but we must not live selfishly thereafter. Remember the rich young ruler? Luke's account in Luke 18, 18 through 24, tells us that he came and asked, what good teacher must I do to inherit eternal life? At that time, the rich young ruler lived under the law of Moses, and so the Lord gave him the appropriate response keep the law, and he cited some of those uh, commandments from the law of Moses that were pertinent at that time. He said, these things I've kept from my youth up, and he asked a very good question, what do I lack yet? And the Lord, knowing this young man's heart, said, one thing you lack, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. And the young man went away sorrowfully because he possessed a great many things, and the Lord obviously knew the heart of this young man, and that it was those things that stood between him and obedience to the Lord. The rich fool in Luke chapter 12 is an example of one who was perplexed by the fact that he was running out of space to store his goods, and so determined he would tear down his barns and build greater barns, and say to his soul, soul, take thy ease, eat, drink, and be merry. You have goods laid up for a long time. And the Lord said, fool, fool, fool. This night your soul will be required of you. And whose will these things be that you have provided? We cannot live selfishly. We cannot live for self alone. Christ didn't live that way, did he? Not at all. Christ gave his life not for himself. He had no sin. He gave himself as a ransom for all. 1 Timothy 2 verse 6, Paul says, Christ gave himself as a ransom for all, all mankind, for all time, to have opportunity to respond to that sacrifice. He gave himself for all as a ransom that we might be what? Rich in the truest sense of riches, in the only sense about which we need to be concerned about riches, spiritual riches. Riches, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul writes, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. We, through his poverty, if we're Christians today, have become rich. Rich beyond measure. Rich beyond comprehension. Not with the things of this world but with the things that pertain to the next world. And so, 
We're to live in the flesh, but not of the flesh, but not for self only, but we should also live for others. Galatians 6 and verse 2, Paul reminds Christians there to bear one another's burdens. And he said, in so doing, you fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. A few verses later in verse 5, he says, each one shall bear his own burden, as the King James says. The New King James says, each one shall bear his own load. And the word load is a good translation because burden is used twice in the King James, but they're two different words. The first one, bear one another's burdens, is the idea of a burden that is just too heavy to be borne alone. We need the help of our brothers and sisters. Verse 5, when he says, each one shall bear his own burden or load, is the word meaning responsibility. We must bear our own responsibility, but sometimes we have burdens, as verse 2 of that text points out, that are so heavy and so difficult, we need the help of our brothers and sisters. And so we help others to bear those heavy, heavy loads. Support others. In Acts 20, verse 35, Paul reminds us of something the Lord said about which we have no specific record, but he obviously said it, otherwise Paul wouldn't have said that he said it. And that was, it is more blessed to what? Give than to receive. More blessed to give than to receive. And what about the one who has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him? How does the love of God abide in him? That's what John asked in 1 John 3, 17. How does the love of God abide in someone who sees a brother in need and shuts up his heart? The King James says shuts up his compassion from him. How does the love of God abide in such a person? I don't think John was seeking information, was he? He was asking a rhetorical question. He was saying, in effect, the love of God doesn't abide in that person if he does not demonstrate that love as he lives for others. What manner of persons ought you to be? One who lives for others. And then next, one who lives as though God knows every move. Why should you live like that? Why should you live as though God knows every move? Because he does. That's why, isn't it? Because he does know every move. If you turn to the 139th Psalm, you see that the inspired writer there certainly understood that fact, didn't he? In Psalm 139 in verse 7, beginning, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there, the Hadean realm under consideration. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. God sees our actions. Again, as we noted earlier in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Every one of us will give account of what we have done and yes, of what we have said. In Matthew 12.36, the Lord says, every idle word that men may speak, they ought to give account of it in the day of judgment. 
He knows our thoughts. The Hebrews writer reminds us there's no creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are what? Naked and open before the eyes of him to whom we will give account. He sees all. He knows all. How would we like it if our lives were flashed upon a screen for all to see? God sees the screen. He has it all. But even though the world doesn't see everything about us as God does, the next point we make in answering the question, what manner of persons ought we to be, is this. We need to live as though the world is watching. We need to live as though the world is watching. Because the world does see quite a bit, doesn't it, about us. The world cannot know everything about us in terms of what's in our what's in our thoughts at all times, as the Lord does, but the world does see some things, and we need to live with that in mind, that the world is watching. Remember what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in the second epistle? He said at 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 2, you are our epistle. What? Written in our heart, known and read by all men. Your life is an epistle, known and read by all men. That is what they see in us needs to be important to us. That's why Paul in Colossians 4 and verse 5 admonished, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside redeeming the time. Not outside the church building, but outside the church. That is outside the body of Christ. Those who are not yet Christians. They are watching, they do take note of those of us who claim to be children of God and we're to walk in wisdom toward those who are outside. And then he adds, redeeming the time. That is literally buying up the opportunity. Buying up the opportunity. Looking for opportunities to teach others. Those opportunities will be few and far between for those of us whose lives do not harmonize with what we're trying to teach others. They'll first have to see the sermon before they hear it, as the poet once wrote. And they need to see it in us. We're to walk honestly. Notice what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 13, beginning at verse 13. He says, let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in licentiousness and lewdness, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. There we are again in the flesh. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Flee youthful lusts, Paul wrote to Timothy on one occasion. Flee. Don't flirt with lust. Flee from it. Flee from it. And so we need to ask, Are we saviors or are we stumbling blocks? As others see us, as the world watches, are we saviors or are we stumbling blocks? Our lives tell an awful lot. And finally, in answer to the question, what manner of persons ought you to be? The answer is we need to live as though this were the last 
day on earth. Live as though this were the last day you were going to spend on this earth. Why? Because it may be. It may be. We have no way of knowing that it will not be. It very well could be. Remember that rich fool to whom we alluded earlier in Luke 12, verse 20? God said to him, fool, this night, this night, you have torn down your barns and built bigger barns. You are prepared for a long life of ease and pleasure and comfort. And this very night, you're going to leave this earth. And whose will all this be? Live as though this were the last day. Because life is uncertain, isn't it? Going back to James and chapter 4 and verse 14. Whereas you know not what will happen tomorrow, what? What is your life? It is a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Hebrews 9.27 says, And as it is appointed unto men to die once, and after this, the judgment. And we don't know when that death will come because as we said at the outset of this study today, we do not know when the Lord is coming. And it is tragically amazing that so many claim to know when he is coming. We do not know. Watch therefore, the Lord said in another text in Matthew twenty-five thirteen. For you do not know the day nor the hour in which your Lord will come. You don't know the day nor the hour, let alone the year, as some have even recently been predicting and have missed it again. You don't know the day nor the hour. Luke 12, verse 40, therefore, what? You be ready. You also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. In an hour you do not expect. Well, doesn't all of this tell us and much more that could be cited from Scripture, from the words of the Lord Himself and the words of inspired penman, that we need to live this day as though it were our last? Because we don't know. We don't know that it won't be. All in this life is perishable. And as we began with the text from 2 Peter 3, though there are scoffers who say things have continued as they are from creation, where's the promise of His coming? The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The dream of God, if you will, is that all men be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4, that's his long-suffering as he pleads with us through his word and through those who are faithful, faithfully proclaiming his word and through his people. He pleads for those who have not obeyed that word, that simple, pure gospel to do so while time and opportunity are still theirs because he is long-suffering but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night 
and all this is going away. And the only thing that will endure is what we've sent on ahead in terms of the treasure that we're laying up in heaven. That's what Jesus said, didn't he, in the Sermon on the Mount? Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consume and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your heart is, where your treasure is, rather there will your heart be also. How ought we to live? In the flesh, but not after the flesh. We should not live for self only, but live also for others. Live as though God knows every move because He does. Live as though the world is watching because it is. Live as though this were the last day on earth for you because it could be. And what if indeed it were the last day? Where would you be for all eternity? Where would you be? The only way to be certain about where you would be is to be obedient to the teaching of His Word, the New Testament, which tells me and you and all men for all time to come, believe that I am He, Jesus said, or die in your sins, John 8, 24. I tell you, He said, that you're going to die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. But tragically, so many stop right there and say, yes, I believe. I, I agree mentally to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. What more should I do? The Lord tells you what more you should do. When He says in Luke 13, 3, and again two verses later, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Belief alone cannot save if repentance is essential, and it is. The Lord said so. Believe and repent. But should I sweeten my lips by confessing that He is the Christ before men? Romans 10.10 says I should. And the Lord Himself in Matthew 10.32 said, Whoever therefore will confess me before men, him will I confess before the Father in heaven. But what about baptism? Oh, tragically, tragically. So many stop at the water's edge, as it were, and say, no, don't try to tell me that I've got to get my body wet in order to please God. It's not a question of getting your body wet to please God. It's a question of reaching the blood of Jesus Christ, the only substance that can possibly save any of us. And the Scripture says that in that water, God applies that blood. Why did He do that? I don't know and I don't have to know. All I need to know is that Jesus made it abundantly clear when he said, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. And every act of conversion in the book of Acts culminates in that burial in water upon every case of obedience to God. It finishes with that burial in water where the blood of Christ is applied. And I rise from that watery grave, cleansed not by water, but by the blood that's applied from heaven itself. And the Lord Himself adds me to what? The church of my choice? No, we never read of that in Scripture. We only read of the pre-denominational church of Christ's choice. The one that He purchased with His blood, Acts 20, 28. The one that He promised to build, Matthew 16, 18. And it existed long before man complicated and confused the matter 
by injecting his teachings and his doctrines and mixing them with the doctrines of God to establish religious bodies named by men and governed by men. Christ is still the head of the church we read about in the New Testament. And every obedient believer is added to that body. Thanks be to God. We can be the church of the first century in the 21st century by doing what the first century pattern in the New Testament tells us we must do. If you haven't done that, then you cannot answer Peter's question in the affirmative and with confidence and faith that I'm living so that if this were my last day on earth, then I have nothing, nothing to fear. That can all change as you're willing to obey. There may be some here who need to come home to their first love, who have wandered from the truth, who've known it, obeyed it, but have not lived in such a way as to bring glory to God and to his people and to his church, but rather shame and reproach. If that's the case, come home. And confess as publicly as the sin has been confessed, has been committed, the sin that separates you from God, the sin that keeps you from being in covenant relationship once again with the God of heaven. As we stand to sing, will you come?